Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Goslowski, here as usual with my favorite co-host, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Great, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. So today we've got a, bunch, a whole bunch of films to talk about. Uh, we're going to start off with two that are now streaming. Um, they're both Netflix films, right? Yep. And uh, there's there's something else that, that the film the films have in common. They're very very different films, but um, they're both sort of if if you if you're looking for realism, these are not the films for you. Um, they both create very different worlds, uh, but like I said, they're very, very different from each other. Uh, but I really like that. Like, I just, what I appreciate it is, uh, and what you can even see when you're watching it on television, uh, you know, when you're streaming it from Netflix, uh, is just the cinematic qualities that both of them embody. So anyway, um, before before I babble on too much in general, uh, well, let's get down to the details. The first film we're going to talk about is a film called Passing. And it's the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall, based on a novel by Nella Larson. Uh, it's got like a great cast. It's adapted from a celebrated 1929 novel. Uh, it's same, the novel has the same name, Passing, and it tells the story of two women, uh, Irene and Claire, and Claire is passing uh, as a white woman. Her husband doesn't know. Her husband is a racist and he doesn't know. Um, uh, and meanwhile, Irene, you know, is living in Harlem with a black husband, you know, um, but, and they're old, old friends and they have this chance meeting and when they meet up, this sort of clash starts to happen in terms of Claire being a different kind of person sort of upends Irene's world in this sometimes very subtle way, sometimes very direct ways. But what I really appreciated about the film was, like I said, the cinematic means it's very poetic in, in many ways. Lighting is a factor, lighting, color, um music like it really uses jazz music to great effect in different ways this is the time of the harlem renaissance right uh so uh, for example you know you've got this jazz trumpet playing in the in uh, irene's neighborhood in harlem right it's, it's the time of the harlem renaissance um but other times you've got this jazzy piano with uh, shots of like light through trees that sort of punctuate what's going on and the whole thing is like dreamlike and unreal in a way but it's very real in in another way um and and uh hang on i gotta get the name of the actress I got myself a little excited here so <laughs> it's okay ruth, ruth nega um as claire uh is just i mean both women are, are captivating the other actress is tessa thompson they're both they give such incredible performances in, in the film. The power of the film rests on their performances very, very much. Um, but Ruth has got this quality. Ruth Nega has got this quality that is like an iridescent kind of quality. And, and the whole thing kind of reminded me of a Tennessee Williams play, you know, or, or like Streetcar Named Desire. Like she, uh, Ruth Nega's Claire took on this Blanche Dubois quality. Anyway, I, 
I need you to step in, Courtney, because I'm starting to babble with, you know, absolute excitement about this film. It's uh, as you start getting into it, the more you talk about it, the more there is for yeah, me. It's a very layered work. And, you know, the, the excitement's understandable because it's a really well done film. Uh, well, what I liked about it, as you mentioned, the performances are great. And through both Irene and Claire, the film works on multiple levels because there's the the base root of the issue of race and Claire passing because she f- feels that living a, a life as a white person is more beneficial to her, both financially um, from a just a more comfortable living um, point of view. And Irene, who's also a light skinned black woman, admits that she does tend to pass when it's convenient, like, you know, on occasion. So at the, the film opens where she's in a store, a, a very posh white toy store, and they're treating her with the respect because they naturally assume she's a white woman. The, the store is in the white part of town. So there's that whole issue of, of race. And especially in the Renaissance time, you know, the impact, the, the privileges that come with, with being white or being able to pass as white. But then there's also a level of passing that Irene's doing on her own in, sen- in the sense of hiding her sexual desire that keeps, but like when she meets Claire, she's immediately drawn to Claire. Like she doesn't even recognize her as an old friend. It's her body that catches her eye. And throughout the film, the, as they reconnect and they get closer, Irene has a, like a longing look towards Claire, but she can't quite reveal that. So, you know, she has to pretend that she's just a straight, normal mother, wife, what have you, without this other sexual desire. So like, there's, there's, this film works on so many different layers. And, you know, it's a film about race. It's a film about sexual desire, but it's also a film about repression. You know, like Claire mm-hmm. has to Absolutely. repress that desire um, to go back to the community that she really longs for, but she's kind of gotten tired of white life and she's not as fulfilling as she thought it was. And Irene has to repress her desires and the jealousy she gets when she sees others getting close to Claire. Right. So it's a very interesting um, film. And then you also have Claire's husband who, as you said, is a racist. He, he hates black people, even though he admits to have never interacted with anyone, any of them in person. So it's just he's going off a lot of the hearsay of, oh, they're thieves or this or that. And it's, you know, it, it's interesting that Claire would be willing to put up with that. So like he even has a, a racist pet name for her that she's willing to live with all of that just to get what she feels is a, a better life. So it's 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 a fascinating film. The fact that it's shot and or at least presented in, in black and white also makes you really focus at the issue at hand because. You know, the color is stripped from the film. So you now have to really look at how the idea of race and color plays in this black and white setting. And even though you know Claire is black, you compared to something like um, trying to think of what uh, was a double um, imitation of life, imitation of life, where there's, you know, the daughter is portrayed by a white woman in that film, even though she's supposed to be mixed here, you have a black woman playing a woman who is passing and it adds a whole different connotation to how you look at the film, even, even though it's stripped from color. So yeah, it's a, a very fascinating work. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and what you were saying about the color being stripped away, I mean, that really enhances um, what Rebecca Hall is doing. In you know, like I said, with the cinematic elements, that's they just very subtly. But um, if if you start to really look at the film, you start to really see how she reinforces what's going on in the narrative by you know the way that she lights one or the other character and um just the way and what you were saying about looking you know irene looking at claire like these things become more obvious i think the black and white really works in rebecca hall's favor to help her really reinforce that and really make it like come to the fore it has more impact you know what you were saying about the looks the you know and this this like cinematic trope this visual trope of looking it's all about looking but what is that character feeling and the repression especially that you you were talking about yeah absolutely riveting film all right so do you want to go to uh okay so on a completely different level also on netflix now it's uh it played in theaters uh is the harder they fall which is a film by james samuel it's basically a Western, but it's more of a reinvention of the Western. So if you, I think we've, we've said this before, but, you know, the Greeks and how they um, had this theory of how you present an evening, like a double bill, you would present the tragedy first and the comedy later. This, this is the more fun film. It's a completely, you know, different film. Um, it, so James Samuel is reinventing the Western. It's an all-star cast, all black cast, um, basically taking back the Western and, you know, reinserting like black, there were black cowboys. And so this film is embracing that, that embracing that reality, but it's also embracing the reality that you can have an all-star cast of black people and you can make this riveting, fun reinvention of the Western. Uh, it's got a bit of a spaghetti Western vibe that I really loved, but it's it's different. It's just very different. It's like, it's funny. It's having fun. It's got some really irreverent, witty moments. It's got, it's definitely a violent film. Uh, Tarantino asks, uh, it's got this action movie parts, um, what he does with music is amazing. And basically, I should tell you the story because that's that's part of it. Story is quite simple, which is um, a really uh, important part of, I think, making a fun Western type movie where you're rooting for good guys versus bad guys, right? Um, so basically, Nat Love is, he's an outlaw himself, but sort of on the good side of things, on the good side of the law. His enemy, Rufus Buck. So uh, Nat Love is played by Jonathan Majors. You guys will will know him from the HBO show. Oh, uh, Lovecraft County. Lovecraft County. And he's also Um, in the the Five Bloods, the Spike Lee film from, I guess, um, maybe two years ago. It was was really good. Yeah. So he he's he's like a big name now. Um, And so anyway, so he plays Nat Love. Nat Love discovers that his he discovers that his enemy, Rufus Buck, played by Idris Elba, is being released from prison. And 
if you see what happens, when you see, when you see what happens to make not love hate Rufus that much, you will understand why he can't even stand the notion that Rufus Buck is going to be living. So like it was fine when he was locked up, but he's alive and he's going to be free. So he decides to take his gang and go track down Rufus and kill him. And Rufus has his own gang. Uh, the, the cast is incredible. And uh, it's, the characterizations are really like, it's, it's great the way uh, all these actors and the director really create such kind of characters from, from these two gangs so that the interactions between them um, is suspenseful, but it's also, like I said, fun and funny. I can't, I don't think I could use the word fun anymore, like for a movie uh, and the music, the way he, he interweaves music is just, anyway, I'm babbling yeah. again because I'm excited. This was, this was a great film. No, no, I think you're, you're right on the, um, hit right on the, the nail on the head when you said that it's, you know, just a, a fun film. It's one that regardless of whether or not you're a fan of Westerns, you're going to have fun. And then, you know, it's, it's stylish. As you said, it's very Tarantino-esque in the way how it, it takes real life characters. Um, all the, the people f- featured in this film are, were real life people back in the day. We were like cowboys, but just like how Tarantino does with his Westerns and his historical films, he remixes history puts him in a, a fictional scenario and, and runs with it. Um, to, for the most part, it works. I would say one of the big complaints, and a, a lot of people have mentioned this, is um, the character of Mary Fields, played by Zazie Beetz. So right. in real life, she is a larger, dark-skinned Black woman. And it was a really fierce woman. Whereas here... There's an issue of colorism because Zazie Beetz is a light-skinned actress. And also, I had issues with how that character is portrayed because she starts off and you think, okay, she's as tough as nail. And then she makes a decision that, in my mind, made no sense outside of, oh, we need to get from point A to B. So we're going to have this character do this particular action and then be a damsel in distress for a good portion of the film. So that, that really irked me how, how all that was handled but having said that this film is a lot of fun the characters are great i like that you're rooting for nat love but at the same time rufus buck's gang which includes um virginia king playing was it trudy smith and lakeith stanfield as cherokee bill they're yeah. also really entertaining and, and in some ways, yeah, you, the, I kind of wanted to like them. Like I wanted, yeah. I did like them, right? Despite them being on the, the wrong side of this equation, right? They, they almost made them too cool for villains because you're, they're so entertaining that I didn't necessarily find them all that menacing. Like Regina King does a really good job of making her character later on um, really menacing. But I also found that for the villains, at least um, Rufus Buck and Tree Smith, they also give them these backstories that make them more sympathetic like you know it's not that they were inherently evil things happened in their life that kind of pushed them towards a life of evil things which is fine but in a film like this i want my villains to just be menacing <laughs> so that when they get their comeuppance it's more satisfying whereas here i i, I liked both sides equally so i was entertained by both sides so when they're duking it out 
I know I'm supposed to root for the Nat Love gang, but part of me is like, well, I kind of want to see some of these people <laughs> yeah. do well, as, you know, and so it's a it's a interesting back and forth, but great delivery, great use of humor. Um, you know, they talk because even though it's a film about cowboys and primarily black cowboys, whiteness still exists in that world. And in many yeah. ways, regardless of which gang you're on, whiteness is still kind of trying to keep you down. Like whiteness is like yeah. the, the real evil of, of this film. And you see when they go to a white bank, how they're belittled, made fun of until the tables are turned. And then they get lower. The way, the way that the film portrays this town, the white bank in the white mm-hmm. town. I mean, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but the way the film is like, okay, we're going to a white town and then they get there. And it's like, oh, I thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was definitely a put down and definitely, you know, menacing. But man, did they have fun with that concept of going, you know, going to a white town and a white bank. And it's the same where they, you know, there's a, a train heist, if you will early on and it's again predominantly white train and the way how some of the passengers interact and and think that they can show up a a crew of black cowboys that you know like there's there's certain egos that come into play whether they're soldiers or whether they're regular civilians and once again they kind of get their comeuppance in rather amusing ways like they quickly realize oh the the type of boisterous, you know, um, bluster that we usually would present towards black people is not going to work for these guys, you know, yeah. we're, and, and also we're not as strong as we maybe feel we are, even though yeah. like there's maybe four of them on the train. It, there's just and again, part of it's the style too. like the film is so stylized that there's a lot of great shots in this movie, you know, so things just look cool. It's a fun movie. And then you've got this really nice hip-hop reggae soundtrack absolutely which you wouldn't Uh, expect from a western but it works perfectly you're thinking why doesn't more westerns have this like you know you (laughs) just it's such a interesting um way to tell a western that we haven't seen in a while and i thought i just found it really invigorating it was just a fun fun film yeah the way it used music i mean there was one of these kind of climaxes and then suddenly you hear a fella Kuti song and it was like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. It mm-hmm. turned the whole thing into this sort of uh, jazzy ballet of bullets. And, you know, it's like, wow, it was it was kind <laughs> of invigorating, which was a little scary. Me, you know, getting invigorated by violence. But it was like, yeah, go for it. You know? Every once in a while, you need a little cinematic violence, you know, not, not in real life, but on screen, it's it's fine. And this film offers plenty of it, but in a in a fun way that won't uh, creep you out or anything. Yeah, but I mean, I think that you have a valid point with uh, what you said about like there's, there's too many likable characters, even though they're, on, you know, on different sides. But I think that, you know, that really pays off when you have scenes like, you know, the true evil is actually the white people, you know, the white, the people in the white town and the people on the train. I think, you know, that's, that's the payoff of having it kind of messy like that. It's sort of, it's actually kind of more complex that Mm -hmm. way, but I, I agree. It's kind of messy, but I don't know, even that part worked for me, but 
yeah, I guess I was just like such a fan. It's a fun film. I just think from from a narrative standpoint, they they take some shortcuts to to get to certain things. It's like, oh, but by doing that, you've kind of reduced some of the characters, and also, why would you need to go that particular route that it takes? Like, it just it seems yeah. like such a roundabout way to get to the big scenes that you want to get to. But then when you get to those scenes, there's so much fun that you're willing to to forget it's uh, yeah a few of its flaws. Yeah. But anyway, so I highly recommend that part of the fall, both of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you went to the cinemas. These cannot be streamed. So these these are two films that uh, you have to go in the cinema. Yep, they're Tell they're out for a while. I've been doing a little bit of um, theater catch up now that cinemas are are open. Um, and I've been going to a few of the films that have been out for a while, but also the ones where there's just not the pack theaters. So, um, so depending on your comfort level, I recommend checking the Cineplex site and their seating charts. That'll always, you know, help you gauge how many people may or may not be in your film. But I saw um, Denny Villeneuve's film Dune, the much talked about big screen adaptation of the classic science fiction novel. So this yes, one very is exciting. Eh? Yes, it, it's, it's part one of the book. Um, and what's fascinating about this is that unlike Lord of the Rings or some of the Harry Potter ones where they film a couple back to back, they made part one without actually securing a part two. So the studio, I don't know why they didn't just green light to have them both done because in this franchise obsessed society, it would have been the, the smart thing to do. But I guess they were hedging their bets and now they're. They finally greenlighted part two, so we have to wait, I think, another two years. But this one pretty much follows the book um, rather closely in terms of the overall plot. You have the Atreides family who's um, led by the Duke, played by Oscar Isaac, and he and his son, played by Timothy Chalet, and his companion, played by Rebecca Ferguson, are sent to this desert planet of Arrakis to take over um the i guess house of harkonnen which is like the current ruling party uh, on arrakis both the atreides and the harkonnen all fall under this emperor and he just wants to shuffle the deck a bit in the book it explains a lot more about the reasons for it he's it's essentially the emperor has sent the um atreides there because they've become a little too popular and he's set some plans and motions to cut them down to size, both uh, metaphorically and physically. So a lot of this is a tale of young Paul having to basically work his way up to becoming a hero and learning that the people on uh, Arrakis who are, it's a very dry desert land. He coming from this land of water, will help unite those two, I guess, political lands, and then they will rise up eventually. This is not a spoiler because this is the book Dune um, to fight the Emperor and the Harkonnen. So a lot of this is, again, the first half of the book. I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't love it as much as a lot of other people did. Um, I think it's a very good film. Denis Villeneuve is just a, a visual master. I think for me, 
while I was watching it, I realized I was filling in a lot of the blanks. Like they to they cut out a lot of um, a lot of the political stuff at the beginning, which kind of sets things up and it kind of explains the dynamics a little more. So, for example, there's a scene where Oscar Isaac's Duke tells his companion, Lady Jessica, oh, I, I wish I should. I should have married you. Whereas, you know, it comes it's kind of a throw off line of all oh, the you know, you think of it as, well, these two people are in love, but they they just never cemented it. But in the book, he couldn't marry her because he had to keep himself available, at least politically appearing available because he might need to marry someone to help bridge a divide or something. So like things like that. And then when the Duke is betrayed, it doesn't, it's not quite explained in this one. So you just realize, Oh, someone in his camp has betrayed him. But in the book, again, there's, they explain why like there's, there's layers that are, I think missing. So my brain was kind of filling in the blanks, which was fine. But then I kept thinking, well, if you went into this, not having not read the book, it's still a very interesting science fiction thing, but I don't know if you get the emotional connection with it, especially right, since it's right. the, the first part. So like visually, you're going to get the, the action. The story's easy to follow, but it I don't know if it really connects emotionally. Um, at least for me, it didn't connect that way. And I think that's because my brain was filling in the blanks. So, you know, I think yeah, it's because you were filling in the blanks from the book. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I was I was basically trying to force myself with those connections by filling in all the missing pieces. But I still think it's a very good film. I think it's it's worth seeing if you can see it on the big screen um, you know, and you're comfortable with going to the theaters. Definitely. It's, it's great to see on the big screen. It's, it's a visual thing. I know there's a lot of debate about big screen, small screen. If you're one of those that will wait till it comes on the smaller screen, you know what? You're still going to enjoy it. I'm not going <laughs> to be one of those people that tell you you must see one or the other. Um, it is a good film. I don't I wouldn't say it's his best, but for the scope of it um, and the fact that Dune is considered one of those books that is supposed to be impossible to film. I thought he did a really they did a really good job with it. But if you're going to have a film, even if it's part one, put in those those little moments that kind of explain the politics a bit more. So yeah, I, it's I, the context, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely would recommend that. And um, the other one I saw was the new Bond film, No Time to Die, which is a film where if we're talking about context and backstory, it's the final Daniel Craig Bond film. So this is his fifth and final one. And it essentially tries to tie together all the four previous ones into this story while also creating a new bond villain and going through the bond motions. And I wasn't as wild by this one. Um, I think it's probably my least favorite of all the Daniel Craig ones. And it's, it's interesting because again, they try for a lot more emotion, but I felt like the film's threads are too scattered. And by time you hit certain beats or certain action sequences, it felt more like they were going through the motions um, the plot of this one is that um, Bond is essentially retired from the game. He's off having his lovely life, starting off with Madeline, who was played by Leah um, Sidhu from many films. She was in um, a couple of the Wes Anderson movies. She was also in the last Bond film, um, Spectre. She was the, the love interest of that. So she's back in this one. 
but you find out there's a secret from her past, which is linked to whoever this new villain is played by um, Rami Malek. And through her past and the, the fact that Spectre as an organization is still existing, even though Christoph Waltz Blofeld is now in prison, he's kind of thrown back into the mission, into the uh, espionage lifestyle to try and figure out what's going on and, and who to trust. And um, it comes out that Remy Malik's character has this virus, a, a poisonous um, virus that can match people's DNA. So it's one of those things that if you come in contact with it, you could be a carrier for life. But if it's not matched to your DNA signature or any one of your loved one's DNA signatures, you'll be fine. But if you come in contact with someone whose signature this particular virus has been thing to match, you can like wipe out whole families, generations, stuff like that. So you've got this weird kind of virus thing, even though we've lived through a pandemic where, we're, you know, it's just it's a weird kind of meta <laughs> moment that I think was unintentional, but it just kind of happens that way. Yeah, because it was filmed before the pandemic. Yeah. It was yeah, yeah. to come out before the pandemic. Yeah, it's oh just one, one of those. Timing. Yeah, it was just one of those interesting timing things. But how they do it and they use the scientific things with nanobots, the little microcomputers and a whole bunch of nanobots. And I think we need to get rid of nanobots from cinema because it's always a trope in many science fiction films. But Remy Malik's character, Safin, has these has this deadly virus thing and Bond has to stop him. Um, I found the film plotting the, the way how they try to stitch together everything never worked. And there's one great moment in it where Bond has to work with this new American CIA agent played by Ana de Armas, who was the lead from Knives Out. She was the, the maid that was at the center of Knives Out. And it is a wonderful scene. Like she is perfect in the role, you know, as, as an addition, as like a, as a Bond girl, she is fantastic because she's kind of innocent, naive. But then when the action happens, she's kicking butt. And it's, there's a, it, it felt like that moment in that film, it's brief, but it felt like, okay, we're now in a Bond movie. And then it stops. And then we're back <laughs> to this kind of emotional plotting. He's, you know, it goes back to like, oh, Bond can't catch a break with love because he can't trust people. And, so, you know, should he be that trusting never that? Works. That never works in a Bond movie. Come on. Yeah. I, you know, it worked. Even I know that. It worked in Casino Royale uh, where he's betrayed. And like, you know, even one of my favorites on Her Majesty's Secret Service, you have that thing where he falls in love gets married and then blofeld kills his wife you know like those okay that beat works because we've had that whole time to see the the, the budding love affair happen and then when happiness is about to hit tragedy happens but this one it's like okay we we've been through specter we've seen him mope in um quantum of solace of this thing and so it's like okay we keep hitting these these beats of him trying to find love and find happiness and him being out of the forest, but coming back into the forest. And there's talks of the British government knowing that a, a potential dangerous weapon exists, but having the arrogance to think that they can kind of control it. All of those things are at play, but they don't delve into any of that because it kind of keeps going back to the same beats of, um, you know, morose bond trying to 
figure out life and what have you. And it's, it spends so much time building up these things and then trying to tie in all these other films that it, it doesn't have its own identity. So I, I won't delve into any more because even before the film, they tell you to keep, keep the secrets. Don't spoil this one. Cause again, it's, you know, a lot of stuff happens, but I just, for me, it just didn't work. And I know a lot of people love it. And no time to die was a huge hit this year, but of all the Daniel Craig ones, it was probably my least favorite. You know, there's some interesting moments, but as a whole, it's just kind of ho-hum. So. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, oh. but it's, it's bond. I mean, if you, if you like bond, see it, especially because it's, it's Daniel Craig's the last one. So you'll see yeah. how they throw everything together, but. I just felt like there was a lot of potential that every time it was like, oh, this is going to go in an interesting direction. It takes a turn where you go, well, why did you do that? That doesn't make any any sense. So it'll be interesting to see where the franchise goes from from here. But yeah, too bad they couldn't summarize this this chapter of the Bond yeah. series. And and I honestly I feel like you didn't even need to do that much summarizing like you know you introduce specter officially in the end was the fourth film it's you know there's you, you could there's there's interesting ways that you could take this concept and still make it unique like when i think of um, quantum of solace or skyfall my two favorites of the daniel craig ones they're unique films they they stand on their own they don't need to be whereas this film if you take out the elements from the previous films, I don't think it stands on its own at all. Because Remy Malek, his Safin is not that interesting of a villain. The henchman is nondescript. Because, you know, there's always that one second in command that you, oh, you got to be fearsome of. Um, they, they introduced um, Lashana Lynch, who some people might remember from Captain Marvel as the, as the agent who takes over the 007 um, mantle when he retires uh, and that offers a few interesting moments but there's not enough of it you know having like the old 007 and this person who's assumed the new one and you know there's interesting questions about legacy and how a man of his stature you think his number would be retired but they just gave it to someone else meaning you're disposable right like there's a lot of interesting things that could but again they don't dive into that because they spend so much time having to tie up all these other threads that no one really asked them to tie up. So I don't know. It's it's there's been better Bond films. It's it's not by far it's not the worst of the Bond movies. It's nowhere near Moonraker level of bad. It's just more I found it just more disappointing than anything. Right. Yeah, but but still a Bond movie in a cinema is still something, right? Yeah, it's it's still, you know, it's it's a Bond movie. Interesting. It's interesting, you know, this whole concept of you know seeing it in a cinema and seeing it you know, at home. Uh, yeah. I mean, with certain films, with certain films or with certain people, uh, there's, there's not a lot of difference, right. Between yeah. the two experiences. Right. And I, so, I think, like, sorry. I was going to say, I think also, I, I understand from a, a film lovers standpoint, and even as critics, you know, we're, we're always touting the cinema because nothing beats the magic of seeing something in the theater. Um, yeah. Even if you have a bad experience, but at the same time, I grew up as becoming a a cinema a, a lover of film through home video, yeah. watching things on TV. Like to me, going to the cinema was an extremely rare treat. 
it wasn't something like we did every Friday or, or what have you. Like my children have been to the theater far more at their age than I ever was, you know, in, in most of my yeah, life. Yeah, me too. Like, yeah. Just that kind of thing. So I come at it from a different perspective because I come at it from accessibility um, yeah. financially. So I will never tell anyone that, oh, like you have to see it in theater. Otherwise, you are not a, you know, you can't truly appreciate a film. There are some films like Dune. If you can see it on the big screen, it's a, you know, with the sound and everything, it's it's an experience. But I'm still not going to say if you don't see it on the big screen, well, then you haven't truly watched Dune because that's, you know, that's very, it's very arrogant. But it's also assuming that everyone has an IMAX theater in their neighborhood. Everyone has access to money. Has the money. Right. Exactly. And the money to go to the, you know, to Mm -hmm. a cinema for a first run film. I I also, I mean, I grew up uh, watching all sorts of films on television. I I don't know, like back in the olden days, (laughs) back in the stone ages, when I was a kid, uh, I, there was no video. So whatever I saw, I saw it on the, on the television, but that's where I learned about Western movies and gangster movies, like with my father, right? Get Westerns and gangsters and well, romances with my mother and like musicals and, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, like I totally, totally agree with you when you say this is what we grew up with and, and this is what we're used to. And you, you can't really dictate to somebody like when I was watching The Harder They Fall, I was watching it in my home I didn't see they released it on the screen and I think well, that would be a lot of fun on the big screen but I had a lot of fun with it you know mm-hmm. on my tv right and um and I'm just thinking you know like talking about old movies and it's November reminds me that you know uh, a lot of people call November noir them oh yep that's right it's a great excuse to go back in time to watch some film noir so as I was saying like all those other those other genre films that I discovered and was watching um, on television through these U.S. stations, I still get excited. And, and yeah, through video, now I can rent a video or now I can buy a video or through streaming or whatever. Some of these older films, like um, they become available, but I get excited about November because there's a lot of memories but also this is like just a fun kind of cinematic style and genre unto itself right and the time I mean at the time it was in the 1940s and 50s that's not when I was watching it that's not when it was on television Um, but you know so I would see like the repeats but those those films are still on television and not just on the specialty channels like TCM like there's a station out of Hamilton that on the weekends, sometimes they play noirs throughout yep. the year, right? And some of the uh, streaming services are now um, playing old and new noirs, adding it to their um, list of films as well. So, yeah. And the fun thing about noir, besides the fact that you have, like, when I would watch Hollywood films, when anybody would watch Hollywood films, you know, there was like the hero and then good people got rewarded because they were good and bad people got punished. Well, noir was this sort of like subgenre that was happening in the, like I said, in the forties and fifties. So, you know, on the big, big Hollywood screens, they would have like some screwball comedy or some hero 
film, you know, or some like good family, wholesome family drama. But meanwhile, you, you could also go to the cinema and see this more, these films that were noir, which was actually a description of, of the image. Like these are black and white films. They were darker. Um, the, the lighting was darker. The, and the, the vision was darker. The characters had a darker edge, you know, it, not all of them were bad people, but sometimes, you know, you run into people in a film noir film that you wouldn't run into. Uh, so in, in a Hollywood film. So it's, it's a, like a lot more complicated. I guess that's what's always drawn me to it. Like, and um, what really got me excited, like but before I, I get onto this part. So, you know, what I was saying about like streaming and stuff, don't forget in some parts of Canada, we still have video stores, like a, an indie video store. In, in Toronto, it's, it's the Bay Blur video store, right? Where you can go and rent something or buy something, right? Uh, but, but what caught my eye for this month, for November, and like, uh, it's a bit late to say it because we missed a couple of films, if anybody's interested in this. The Fox Theatre is an independent cinema in the East End of Toronto, and they have, they're showing just, just four, but still, they're showing four noirs on the big screen. We, we missed a couple. We missed Double Indemnity and Blue Velvet. Just, you know, they showed them at the beginning. Um, before this show is airing. Um, but I just wanted to let people know that, you know, if you've ever, I mean, this this is a classic film um, and there's still a couple of screenings of this one. They're coming up like Friday, like tomorrow and Saturday. So not a lot of time, but in Toronto, um, The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep is, it was the, one of the, if not the classic, like the masterpiece of noir. And based on a Raymond Chandler novel, Raymond Chandler novels, that kind of hard boiled detective kind of uh, novel, they were like perfect for, for this kind of noirish vision of things. And Humphrey Bogart, you know, master, like a classic actor of the genre. This, he, uh, he stars in this with his wife, uh, Lauren Bacall. She's sort of the love, love interest, but she's like, she's not very good she's smart but she's a little ruthless um and she plays this this rich girl and she's in the middle of this like scandalous crime ridden scheme that's going on um a lot of people say that the hilarious thing about the big sleep is it doesn't all wrap up very neatly at the end uh and in fact doesn't even make sense and raymond chandler's famously quoted as saying that he's not sure what happened in it <laughs> who did what but it's a hell of a lot of fun to watch and for someone who's only seen it on the small screen I think it'd be fun to sit and watch it on the big screen um just to have a different experience of it because this is a film that I've watched over and over and over again you know just out of sheer pleasure um and just uh, to, to also insert the fact that Bogey and Bacall, you know, once they met, I think they met on the, on the uh, set of To Have and Have Not, another film directed by the same director, Howard Hawks. Um, once they met on that, that's the, you know, the instant love. So there's this background to it, like the instant attraction of the two actors and the way they both like that every time they're together on screen, it's got this like sizzling kind of effect. 
Uh, it's quite beautiful. Uh, it's quite beautiful in its like twisted kind of way. And, uh, so I loved it. Um, so I love it. And anyway, so if you're in Toronto, you know, Fox Cinema this weekend, uh, I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, and later, at least this one, I could give you some advance warning if you're in Toronto. Again, the Fox Theater. I do. I really love the fact that in independent cinemas, you know, they're trying to stay alive and they're they're being creative about how to get the audience in. Um, and so also for their noir series, they're showing Sunset Boulevard, which is another famous director of the time, Billy Wilder. He he also created this. This is also like a masterpiece, but the and in a in a way more twisted it starts off with a dead body and you unravel the mystery of it all but in 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 the process of unraveling the mystery uh it's it's just got the the scene the 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 scene of the film like the the feeling of the film the sort of the dark you know Gloria Swanson plays this uh, aging silent film goddess. And she was at the time, and she's sort of like not very relevant anymore, but she doesn't really get it. You know, she's living in this mausoleum old type mansion. And this young writer, William Holden, played by William Holden, he, he gets sort of waylaid and trapped in the house in an interesting way um and it's got this like german expressionistic look to it and this german expressionistic director in the middle of it which uh yeah for those of you who know you know and anyway it's uh it's a wonderful film yeah definitely worth seeing both of those yes did you see those two yep yep um big sleep i saw for the first time about four or five years ago and absolutely loved it uh, Sunset Boulevard. I saw a while ago. I have. It, I need to rewatch that one. Um, I remember enjoying it, but it's it's been too long since I've seen it. So, this might be a good opportunity to revisit it. Yeah, like it's fun to watch these again, right? Because there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. It, it's it seems simple, but then you start to peel back the layers, like we're talking about, right? And anyway, I'm I've exhausted myself with getting excited about all these movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's good. It's a good time to uh, be a lover of cinema. A lot of great options. Yes, yes. Despite despite the pandemic, there's still lots uh, lots of stuff to enjoy. But okay, that that's a lot for today, right? November is also a time for festivals. So Courtney and I, right, we'll be back to talk about some festivals next time. All right. So thanks everybody for listening. <laughs>